0: All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
2: Coming up in the next hour, it's a historical novelist who recently learned the hard way that the Multnomah County Library does not let patrons check out more than 150 books at a time. (laughs) It's a band that Sergio Leone wishes existed in 1965, and it's one of Portlandia's most prominent citizens with a fun fact about the city a
1: freewheeling city on a majestic river, Portlandia is just like New Orleans, but with all the Cajun, African, Caribbean, French, Spanish, and Creole influences replaced by those of young, semi-neurotic white people. It's... it's... What?
2: of Mary Bowser, author Lois Levine, and music from Federale. It's all coming up on Live Wire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Helmeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to, and of course, Scott Poole, who will sit in our audience, and he will write a poem about all the lessons that he has learned during the course of the hour, and we've got music from Ralph Huntley and our house band. Thanks, Ralph. So as you just heard, we have Carrie Brownstein coming up on the show. And she and Fred Armisen of SNL co-created and star in Portlandia on IFC. It's a sketch comedy show in which they play various characters who inhabit Portland, Oregon. But it's also sort of not Portland. Carrie and Fred have said many times that... These characters exist in little pockets in cities all over America, and Portland is just a great stand-in for those places. Carrie has been quoted as saying, Ironically, the more specific we are about Portland, the more it translates to a broader audience. That being said, Portland does have a sense of pride about Portlandia, for the most part. It's mixed in with a little of that awkward feeling that comes with being satirized so incredibly successfully. (laughs) But civic pride is kind of a funny thing, if you think about it. What are you proud of, exactly? You didn't found the city back in 1851. You didn't help plan it. You essentially just did a good job of moving to it. Or, in some rare cases, being born in the right place. It's the same thing as taking credit when someone compliments your dog. I always find that odd. Like... Unless you're a mad scientist or a complete genetic anomaly, you did not make that dog yourself. <laughs> you just did a really good job pointing at it at the Humane Society. Thank you. Thank you so much. I used this finger right here. I used my pointer finger. Works really well. I did a really good job of moving to Portland 15 years ago after my mother and I visited my brother here over a Christmas holiday. He was living in northwest Portland at the time in a ground-floor apartment on the corner of 19th and Everett Street. And those who live in Portland know that the northwest quadrant is notorious for its lack of parking. And uh, it's, I think it's just Portland's little ill-conceived way of paying tribute to San Francisco. And... <laughs> But I remember one night in particular on the trip when we had gone shopping, and Mom and I got back to my brother's, and we circled the block no less than 20 times before finally parking about five blocks away. And when we got to Scott's place, that's my brother, with all of our our packages, um, I looked out the window, and I saw that a spot had opened up right on his corner, not 20 feet away from the apartment. And I just kind of laughed, and I pointed it out to my mom, who went to the window And she couldn't stop staring at the space. She was like a kid at an ice cream counter just staring at a big vat of rocky road that's 50 cents more than she had in her pocket. And she stared at it for way too long and then she looked at me, she looked back at the space, and she got this kind of wild look in her eye and she said, okay, here's a plan. If you go out there right now and stand and hold it, I can go get the car and come back and we can get that space. She's a very smart woman, but she clearly had succumbed to some sort of parking-induced delirium. (laughs) It wasn't a good plan. But despite that one minor flaw, Portland just immediately felt like home to me, and I moved here a year later, and it seemed like just that people were genuinely happy here in a way that I related to more than I related to happy people in New York or Austin and i later found out the reason why in 2009 business week did a study of us cities and found that based on drug company data portland was number 1 in the country for antidepressant prescriptions <laughs> so that genuine happiness i was sensing from people was actually just highly effective serotonin reuptake inhibitors well played pfizer well played And even though the people of of Portland essentially tricked me into moving here, it was definitely the right choice. If you come to visit, which I hope that you will, you will find a beautiful city with ubiquitous art and music, ridiculously good food, and genuinely kind people who won't tell you how to live your life because they don't want anyone telling them how to live theirs. Plus, they might have a small grow business in the backyard and they really don't (laughs) want to call any attention to themselves. They're people who are happy to lend anyone a hand when they need it. A hand or extra pharmaceuticals, whichever you need. (laughs) Portland, Oregon. Listening to our our next guest's record brings to mind a squinty, dusty pre-empty chair rambling Clint Eastwood in a cowboy hat and a (laughs) poncho standing with his hand on his gun, chewing a cigar and waiting for you to draw your pistol. But instead of shooting you, Eastwood just starts kind of shaking his hips because frankly, that is some catchy stuff. Federale's music draws from many sources operatic vocals, straight up rock, some old country twang, and even a little classical to evoke the haunting, violent themes of the spaghetti western with a modern twist. With songs from their brand new record, The Blood That Flowed Like Wine, please welcome Federale to Livewire. Love that flowed like wine. And you're listening to Live Wire Radio.
3: Ready November 9 or 7, 8, Charlie Papa requesting clearance for takeoff from helipad 369.
2: I can't
1: believe you did this. This is very romantic.
3: Well, I've always wanted to see San Francisco
4: from the air, so yeah.
1: Oh, this m- <laughs> just, just may be the best second date ever.
4: I don't know about that. We haven't really had it yet. So.
3: We are cleared for takeoff. this is so exciting okay you're gonna have to put these on to hear each other oh right here we go whoa don't worry i've got
4: you
0: i I didn't think i was gonna fall just saying whoa because we're right
4: sorry no it's
0: fine wow it's beautiful
4: not as beautiful as you what not as beautiful as you are.
1: Oh, that's so sweet.
3: If you look to your right, you'll see old St. Mary's Cathedral built in 1875
4: What does that mean? I think it might mean 1875. Anyway, uh, so what happened with your last relationship? Um... Well,
1: I guess it was your standard story, you know, he felt I got too clingy, and he just wanted something casual, but I I couldn't see the signs. Right! I mean, I guess it might be because when I was 16, a bear killed my father in front of me, and since then,
2: I've been really scared Now, If you look to your left,
3: you will see the Golden Gate Bridge. Built in 1937, it had the largest suspension span in the world at a standing altitude of 4,200 feet.
4: Oh. Uh, Go on about your dad. Uh, never mind. Uh, no, I mean, I can relate. My last girlfriend left me after eight months, and now I feel like I'm not sure if anyone will ever Bull love likes me
3: likes ice cream? That's Baskin and Robin to our right. Little-known fact. They have way more than 31 flavors.
4: You know, I don't think that's really information that we- Oh,
3: oh, I see. Gotcha. Not interested in the most successful ice cream chain in American history. Roger that. Roger. Sorry.
1: No, no, it's fine. I think we all have that feeling at one time or another. You know, losing someone we love makes us question our
2: judgment and whether we're actually lovable My at first all. My wife
3: left me for an F-A-18 Hornet pilot. I was all, oh, a chopper's not cool enough for you, Margaret. <laughs> Am I right, you guys? Come on. Um, look, I- Oh, 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 are, are we not sharing right now? We're just trying to have a date back here. Gotcha. No, no problem. Roger and Wilco on that.
4: Any, anyway, I understand what you've been through. Have you ever tried daily affirmations? You know, I thought that maybe yeah, it- I've
3: got a post-it on my mirror that says, You're good at your job. The chances of you crashing into a building again are very, very slim.
4: Oh, come on. Come on. Maybe we should just go back to the helipad Maybe get some pizza Yeah, that'd be nice
3: Message received, lovebirds But I'm gluten free So if we could go somewhere with a rice meal crust option That's or... disgusting oh, 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 okay, okay then Or, you know, I just put her down right here November 9, are announcing emergency water landing We're gonna need Coast Guard assistance Fine, right. and... fine,
4: I know a really good place on 5th
3: Roger that
2: Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Paul Glazier. You're listening to LiveWire, the radio variety show that's currently on the paleo diet, and looking for a co-op that sells humanely sourced mastodon. Coming up, historical novelist Lois Levine, actress, musician, writer, and multi hyphenate Carrie Brownstein of IFC's Portlandia, more from Federale, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. to dwell in the spaces where literature and history meet. She is a regular contributor to Disunion. It's the New York Times coverage of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. That's 150 years if you are not a sesquicentennial enthusiast like myself. (laughs) And her poetry and essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Huffington Post, and on NPR. Her first book, The Secrets of Mary Bowser, is a historical novel based on the true story of a former slave, an abolitionist, who returns to Virginia to pose as a slave again in the Confederate White House and spy on President Jefferson Davis. Please welcome Lois Levine to (laughs) Livewire. Welcome to the show, Lois. Thanks, Courtney. So I wanted to to talk to you about the the book, but I also, you wrote a a great piece about writing a historical novel uh, for the Powell's website, and I wanted to, to just have you read that if you could. Sure, I'd be happy to.
5: What keeps a novelist up at night? It's fear of a red tractor. Have you ever longed for the good old days when dentist, barber, and surgeon was a single occupation? Okay, maybe those days weren't so good. But at least back then, the dentist was too busy to be a literary critic, too. My dentist, however, is another matter. (laughs) Last year, while giving my molars the once-over, my dentist told me about a book he'd been reading, a book he really liked until he got to a description of a red John Deere tractor in a field. He immediately put the book down, never to finish it, because, as he put it, Everyone knows John Deere has never made a red tractor. <laughs> that was put in there by some New York editor. Only a Portland dentist can make New York editor sound so evil. <laughs> Authors and our, re- and our editors are always trying to add specific descriptions to our books to make things seem more real. But if you get that real detail wrong, you blow it, big time. As it happens, one of my New York editors is originally from Virginia, where much of my novel, The Secrets of Mary Bowser, is set. And this editor suggested that the bird's nest I tucked into a magnolia tree on the very first page of the book should be in a dogwood instead. Dogwoods are the state tree of Virginia, so that would sound, you know, more specific, less generically Southern. Now, I'd already verified that magnolia trees grew in Richmond in the period in which The Secrets of Mary Bowser takes place. But here was a bona fide Virginian making the case for a dogwood. So what did I do? Being an obsessed lunatic, I contacted the Virginia State Arborist, peppering him with questions about, you know, whether a bird would actually nest in a dogwood if it were in the exact location of the tree on page one of my novel. <coughs> Only when he said yes did I make the change. <laughs> this level of obsession can take an awful lot out of a novelist. When I was reading the final galleys of my book, I realized I'd made a reference to a straight razor. That's the old-timey kind of razor that Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, would use to slit the throat of his hapless victims. My book is set in the 19th century when straight razors were the only kind of razors available. But that actually means nobody would say straight razor. They'd just say, razor. (laughs) Maybe this is not the kind of error that would make a dentist come barber slit your throat. But why risk it? (laughs) so Mary Bowser was a real person a former slave who became a union spy in the confederate white house but in writing a novel about her I focused on crafting a compelling story which means sometimes I did intentionally deviate from what I knew to be true and since finishing the novel I've unearthed new facts about Bowser because I am an obsessed lunatic and I cannot stop researching but some of the things that I made up in the novel I later learned out actually happened which kind of gives me goosebumps Hard as it was for me to make the novel accurate, I still worry about what in those devilish details I might have gotten wrong. So if you happen upon a big old red John Deere in the field of my fiction, please forgive me. And please, do not tell my dentist.
2: (laughs) That was Lois Levine. You're listening to Livewire. We're talking to her about her book, The Secrets of Mary Bowser. What was interesting to me after reading that piece and just knowing sort of how obsessive you are about facts was wondering why you chose to fictionalize this because it seems like you are so... The facts are important. What really happened is important.
5: Well, part of it is that actually very little can be documented about Mary Bowser's life. So this is a... For a biographer, it would be a really awful thing, because there's so much you want to know that you can't know. But for a novelist, it's fantastic, because you have the true historical hook, and then you get to make a lot of stuff up.
2: Yeah. Well, and you, you talked about how the book is based on real events and newspaper clippings and correspondence. What kind of correspondence were you able to find?
5: Well, you can go through and read, like, every letter written by every general to... And I did that only as much as I needed to. But there's lots of juicy stuff. Um, Mary Bowser was owned by the Van Loo family, and she was freed by the daughter of the family, Bet Van Loo, and so she and Bette worked together in the spiring. And Bette Van Loo was exactly what you want. Her life is better documented, and she's sort of crazy in all the right ways. They used to call her Crazy Bet Van Loo. And I should say that some of the weirdest things that happen in the novel are things that Bette really did. Like digging up a body because she felt it wasn't buried with enough dignity and so digging, sneaking out and digging it up and moving it to some place to bury it you know with the proper dignity which I think is what we'll all want when we're dead
2: oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely but not a good idea when you when you're when you're in the middle of, of espionage you know it you're trying to keep things se- from, secret yeah yeah eyes <laughs> on the prize there, bet. yeah exactly eyes on the prize so a little backstory, I guess, about Mary and, and kind of how this started happening. She was actually freed by Betty, and uh, Betty actually sent her to Philadelphia to study. And But she, she actually didn't have a great experience in Philadelphia so much. Well,
5: first of all, getting your freedom often meant leaving your family, your community, everybody you ever knew, and going someplace that is not only totally foreign to you, but although there was no slavery in Philadelphia, there also was no legal equality so she 's someplace where discrimination in education and housing and employment, even in who can ra- ride public transit is, is mm-hmm. totally legal so trying to make sense of that as a fairly young woman on her own is kind of overwhelming
2: well and, and do you think that that, uh, that negative experience had anything to do with her decision to come back and, and- and poses as a slave in order to
5: you know one of the things
2: that is
5: trying to think about her life as she would live it, the novel's in first person, so I'm telling, it's as though Mary is telling the story, is to imagine what it would be like to give up your freedom to walk back into slavery, I mean, to have no protection, to risk your life. And we know how the war ends, but she didn't. So to do that without knowing how long you'd have to do it for, or even what you'd have to do, and whether it would have that outcome, is sort of astounding. So trying to imagine what would bring her to that decision was part of what was the kind of the emotional hook of the story for me.
2: Well, and you, you wrote about uh, the experience for her in, in the book you've written it as becoming invisible again. Yeah. What did you imagine that felt like for her? You know, somebody said, I just can't
5: believe that nobody would be suspicious of her just because she was black. And I think, you know, probably... Lots of women would say that they have had the experience of people of being in some city, situation where you were assumed not to be quite smart, as, as smart as you are just because you're female. It's interesting how both she and Bette would have played on femininity as well as the way that she played on race to completely undermine the system that was insisting that these things were true.
2: There's an Emerson quote in the, at the very beginning of the book, if the whole of history is in one man. It is all to be explained from individual experiences. What aspect of the Civil War do you think is best illustrated by her story?
5: We, we love the story of the Civil War because it is a story uh, where we really think... like good is triumphing. But in fact, the Civil War was incredibly destructive. Three quarters of a million soldiers died. Many civilians died, not uh, from, you know, disease. There was hunger throughout the South. There were food riots throughout the South. And so what would it mean to have this thing that you care about so much, the one thing that you wish for so much, hinge on something that was incredibly destructive. And over the course of the novel, the section of the Civil War, that gets closer and closer to Home for Mary. What, is it, what does it mean? So I think in some ways that is really like the national story. What does it mean to believe we have you know, these great values but to, to make those values true, the cost is so enormous.
2: Yeah, she had some great costs to herself and her family yeah. and um, And so, yeah, she was a great sort of symbol for all of that in that way. Um, Are you working on another historical novel? Yes. Are you? What's it about? I can't tell you or my agent would
5: kill me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm even more scared of her than I am of my dentist.
2: And she, (laughs) she doesn't have any drills. Okay, well, well, we'll wait for that to happen. Uh, the book is The Secrets of Mary Bowser. The author is Lois Levine. Thank you so much for joining it's us. It's a
4: pleasure.
2: <laughs> a few delicious ideas, courtesy of the most recent edition of The Pernicious Omnivore, unconventional recipes from famous authors. J.R.R. Tolkien's Beer Can Chicken.
3: Cut a beer can in half and place it on a chicken the size of which men once ate. Good dwarven steel must be folded in the forge one hundred and one times before casting. So fold your chicken well, for it must serve you in this life and the next and the next. Now look out the window Does a valley greet your view, describe its every feature, from hill to dale, to the womanly crest of an oxbow across a river bend? Oh, forget about the chicken. What the people want is detailed topographical descriptions.
2: Camille Paglia's Holiday Spice Cake. You go to Zabar's
1: and you buy a spice cake because Betty Crocker is dead.
2: Ernest Hemingway's Trout Almondine
4: When your back is slick with the sweat of the day and the river is beneath you pull a rising fish and grasp it firmly It's three in the afternoon and you've got to slather that fish with butter and almond slivers and place it in a skillet and you heat that bastard for seven minutes (laughs) Then kill something else (laughs) also be drunk
2: <laughs> those were some holiday recipes from the pernicious omnivore unconventional recipes from famous authors and you're listening to live wire radio carrie brownstein's biggest fans will remember her as the highly respected guitarist for the rock band's leader kinney when the band went on indefinite hiatus in 2006, she started writing the popular Monitor Mix blog for NPR, while at the same time making ridiculous videos with her friend, comedian Fred Armisen, under the moniker Thunder Ant. The pair now have their own sketch show, Portlandia, produced by Lauren Michaels the show has a rabid following. It has spawned catchphrases like put a bird on it and cacao, and I'm sure others that Carrier will never, ever want to hear again, ever, ever, ever again, ever. <laughs> now the show has spawned a book, Portlandia, a guide for visitors, featuring important things to know about Portland, including the fact that using the font Comic Sans is a felony here, <laughs> and that we host four naked bike rides, two naked Oktoberfests, and 46 nude bar mitzvahs every year. (laughs) Here to discuss all that nudity, please welcome actress, writer, and musician, Carrie Brownstein to (laughs) Livewire. Welcome back to the show, Carrie. Thank you. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me back. The show's about Portland as is the book. But I mentioned your quote from from the Atlantic interview that you did at the opening of the show. The more specific we are about Portland, the more it translates to a broader audience. Why do you think that that's true?
1: Well, I, I think part of it is just people in communities and cities and neighborhoods like Portland around the world recognizing themselves and seeing themselves for the first time. So I think the more specific we are, the more people can kind of relate to it and and delve into their own experiences and that's the way that they kind of find humor and you know reference in the show so i think it serves us well to be specific instead of doing a lot of you know broad comedy
2: yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I talked at the beginning of the show about how much at home I felt here. And, and it was because throughout my adult life, I had gone to all of these other cities and lived in them and found places that were exactly like this, but just in smaller forms, mm-hmm. you know? So I think yeah. That, that, yeah, people mm-hmm. just don't realize that Portlandia really is everywhere. Oh, you know?
1: s- certainly, yeah. It's surprising, you know, people in Australia or Sweden relating to the show. But yeah. yeah.
2: It's great. <laughs> Uh, well, I wanted you to read um, a piece uh, that you had written for... And I don't know if you want to give it a little background about the character that this, that this is coming from. Um, here we go. Get the Gear.
1: Okay. Get the Gear is written from Kath and Dave. And, um, I mean, Kath is not too much different from me uh, in the sense that, well, if I wore more fleece... Um, <laughs> We, and I had a long pone- ponytail. I call Kath's ponytail the lone pone. It's just a—it's kind of an isolated, sad thing that just hangs down her back. But I—I I can relate to that somehow. Um, but I—I I, I do relate to her sense of self-righteousness when you when you see something wrong. It's—it's um, it's easy to fall into that mind frame. Um, anyway, her and her and Dave like to um, perform at their relationship and, and at life. Um, and uh, so this is their list for, for getting the gear um, when you're getting ready to go out. There's a lot of things you need. Um, get the gear. Remember, an adventure is anything that happens outdoors. Before leaving your house, make sure you have the following gear. This checklist. This checklist enclosed in a plastic sleeve in order to prevent water damage. (laughs) A photocopied version of this checklist placed not on your person, perhaps placed with your travel companion or in a secret compartment, think kangaroo pouch. A flashlight or mag light with which to read this checklist at night or in case of a power outage or storm. A backpack with at least five discrete compartments and ideally 75 compartments. In a nondescript color, but with neon or boldly colored accents, but that does not draw unwarranted attention. Four reusable water bottles with various caps to suit one's drinking needs. One for gulping, one for sipping, one for social drinking, and one for panic swallowing. (laughs) Chapstick with a tightly sealed cap that will not take on sand. Active lifestyle, waterproof, shade proof, weatherproof, fun proof, sunblock. <laughs> water resistant coat, pants, and shoes. Rainproof is not enough. Get the ocean proof brands. <laughs> land to water, back to land sandals. <laughs> <laughs> Toe shoes, get the eleven toed ones so that you have an extra. <laughs> Hiking boots make sure they can be worn on volcanoes and not just mountains. A crunchy energy bar for vigorous mouth-chewing and lively conversation. A soft energy bar for relaxing. Fire and asteroid blanket. And a flotation sleeping bag.
2: (laughs) She was prepared. If you're just joining us, that was Carrie Brownstein reading from Portlandia, Guide for Visitors on Livewire Radio. When you read that, that character is so distinct. You know exactly who that person is. And I think that it, it felt like in the second season of the show, you guys really actually drew some deeper characters. Um, was that a, a conscious choice on your part, or did that just evolve? I think it was both, but it was certainly a conscious choice. Uh, I think
1: when um, the creators and writers of the show think about uh, the television that we love watching um i think what brings us back is is character you know we don't want to be a, a con a conceptual show you know um ultimately we want people to find a way into the show and i think that um as we evolve that's can only happen through character so especially in season three which we are um we've already filmed and will start airing in january uh we draw a lot uh, um, a lot from the characters you guys have already seen and um you know, we have some new characters, but we really wanted to give those people a backstory and make them more multidimensional and just, you know, kind of um, realize them a little more than we had before. So, yeah, that's very important to us.
2: Well, and you're at it. You're also... Uh, Chloe years is going to be in the cast? Yes. Of the show? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so how how is she going to play into things? The mayor sends
1: us on a, a mission, um, like a... Kind of like, um, kind of like missionaries um, to um, proselytize the, the religion of Portland. And uh, what she's... is what is that religion? What would you say that is? How would you define that? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> you know, we reference we we end up referencing the timbers a lot, actually.
2: <laughs> Um but Sorry, that's Portland soccer team. Yeah, we we end know. up
1: going up to Seattle and uh we we can only get one person from Seattle that wants to move to Portland. And <laughs> and it's her and we tell her we don't have jobs, we just have chores.
2: <laughs> just like children. <laughs> um. You, you and Fred actually went on a on a live on a live tour last year, and you actually performed some of the material live. How different! And, and he's used to that on SNL. Um, you're used to being in front of a live audience in a band, but that was pretty new for you, right? Performing comedy in front of an audience. Yeah, it was horrifying. It
1: was just. <laughs> Um I honestly I, f- I felt so nauseous and sick for the first couple shows um but it was which I which I love um I mean I don't want to vomit on stage or <laughs> um but I, I you know I, I have always felt that you know that that moment that feels dangerous or uncertain is is a great place to be especially in a live s- setting and uh I got used to it and we had a great time uh, mostly because I am used to performing and connecting to an audience um in a live setting. In Portlandia as a TV show, you don't really get to meet the people that actually in- enjoy it and watch it. So it was a, a real privilege to be able to meet our fans across the country.
2: I actually saw you uh, play with uh, Wild Flag. And I have to say, you were talking about this, this sense of nausea and, you know, being really scared. I have to say that I had never seen you perform. Um, and it just looked like unadulterated joy. And comfort—is that how you're feeling, or are you just putting on a really good front? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think certainly um,
1: the the live aspect of performance has always been something I've embraced as being able to kind of transcend this sort of like cerebral, you know, place that we get s- stuck in and we get kind of you know bogged down and in, in the minutia of conversation and discourse, and you know, it's it's really nice to just be able to connect with people um, in a way that doesn't have to do with that and and there's moments in um, performing Portlandia that feel like that too you know just that you kind of get outside your head and you get to improvise um. yeah so I I really relish that Mm -hmm. quite a bit Mm -hmm.
2: well and you said in your last monitor mix post you actually said that music has been your salvation what would you say that comedy has meant to you in your life Um, I I think comedy has allowed just that that
1: part of me that's always embraced the absurd and I music is something that I take pretty seriously and um I think there's an earnest factor um that will always permeate my relationship to music um and even though that exists in Portlandia I like the silliness like I like the playfulness that um we're allowed to sort of just kind of roll around in and mess around in and it's I think that is sort of the other side of my personality. So I'm I'm glad to be able to explore that with, with Fred, who I love dearly.
2: Well, and he loves music as well. Have you guys talked about integrating more music into the show? Or do you want to keep those two things separated?
1: Um, Jonathan Kreisel, our director and co-creator, really doesn't like either of me or Fred's music very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, he was a fan of Slater-Kinney, but I think that he... Um, we, You know, I think we do love incorporating music into the show but i think that um we we tend to n- we we don't try to you know strong-arm that in. we we have a lot of musical themed sketches this year mm-hmm. and we did last year too but it doesn't tend to be me or fred's music <laughs> yeah
5: yeah
2: <laughs> so uh before you go we actually have a little uh game for you okay um it's <laughs> It's called Portlandia, Not Portlandia. It's a list of oddities that exist in America. And some of them are in Portland, and some of them aren't. The question for you is, you know, on each one, is it in Portland?
1: Okay. Uh, The
2: first one is... But but uh, this isn't about winning, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's Portland, right? So... (laughs)
2: Uh, Yeah, everyone in our audience will get a participation ribbon.
6: (laughs) (laughs) That's such a lie. You just
2: lied to everyone here. I did. Okay. All right. Oddity number one. Layla's Hair Museum. It's a museum of art from the Victorian area made completely of hair. I'm going to say no. That is in Independence, Missouri.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, because that's not the Victorian
2: era and Portland what I Does, mean, it doesn't go together Yeah, not in my mind um, a coffee shop where the tables rotate so slowly that the patrons don't realize it until someone else's latte is in front of them I mean
1: I feel like that just happens naturally when you've been at a coffee shop all day you just end up drinking someone else's coffee um, sure yeah that's here that is here where, where is that so we can promote this wonderful place? Uh, Rimsky Corsa Coffee House. Oh man. That is, that is old school. It is. It also, is old school. Punishing name. It,
2: <laughs> okay. Come on.
1: It, Any you guys is. didn't get that pun? Okay, fine.
2: <laughs> um, a mystery hole. This is uh, the Universal Church of Fun hosts it, it's a deep hole. Just a deep hole you can climb down into, but you have to sign a waiver that reads I, the undersigned, do hereby certify that I must be out of my mind to climb into a deep, dark hole when I'm perfectly safe where I am. Wait, is that the city motto of Portland? Okay. (laughs)
1: Um.
2: It will be momentarily. (laughs) Um, I'm going to say yeah, that's here. That is here. It's the Woodstock Mystery Hole. Of course it is. Uh, the Percy Sky History of Contraception Collection. This is the largest collection of historical contraceptives in the world, including beaver testicles and crocodile dung. I don't think that's here. Case Western Reserve University Medical School, Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> You're going to know this one. The Casa Diablo Vegan Strip Club. That's right here. <laughs> town <laughs> 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 the, and the, the final one is the conflict kitchen it is a takeout restaurant that changes its menu every six months to serve only food from countries with which the United States is involved in a conflict or war God, that's like the worst meal ever it's like it's such a guilt meal um, I know
1: I'm just gonna say, fingers crossed, that is not here.
2: It's not here! Yes! (laughs) First of all, I got all of those right. You got, she got every single one right. Every single one. But you know, Carrie, you know I can't give you, I can't give you first prize, you just get the participation ribbon because you're gonna make everyone else feel bad. That's what I hate about Portland. I want a big trophy.
1: <laughs> OK, well, I, thank you for... I mean, I didn't.
2: I, I just feel really excited right now. I wish I could give an acceptance speech <laughs> <feature> or something. <laughs> You know, you, you can thank the, the folks at Atlas Obscura website because that's where we found, and it's actually quite a great website to go to find oddities all around the country. All so. right, um, yeah. Well, you uh, amazingly well played, Carrie Brownstein, uh, well, Portlandia <laughs> or not Portlandia. Uh, she's the champion forever, probably. Don't you think? <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. The book. The book is hilarious. The book is Portlandia, A Guide for Visitors. Uh, The authors are Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) LiveWire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be right back.
4: All right, pal. You listen, and you listen good. We can place you at the scene of the crime. The coat check girl will testify. And we
3: know that Morelli and you had an argument earlier in the week. Is that why you shot him, Steven?
4: Oh, not talking, huh? Well, we'll give you a couple minutes to think it over.
3: Oh, boy, this guy's tough.
4: Yeah, but I think we can break him somehow. Hey. What?
3: Let's do a little good cop, bad cop, huh?
4: I like it. All right, right. Uh, give me a couple of seconds, and then come in after me. All right, got it. All right, you son of a bitch. We know you went to the pawn store to buy the 38. We know you had bad blood with Morelli, and we know that you were at the warehouse that night. You better start talking, or I swear to God, I'll make sure you sizzle in the electric chair till you're a pile of stinking
3: ash. All right, you son of a b- How many of your teeth do you want me to kick in?
4: Whoa, 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 whoa. What? what? No, you no, were... I thought, yeah. No, no. okay, come here. I'll-
3: I-, I thought we were doing good cop, bad cop We were, but I thought you were going to be good cop Oh, I thought the exact same thing uh,
4: crud Okay, let's try this again Look, um, I'll go first though Okay, alright, got it
3: Hey, Steven
4: <laughs> Look, I'm really sorry for that little outburst just now It was totally unprofessional of me And I just want to apologize I'm here to help if I can
3: who wants cupcakes? Ugh, what are you doing? What? There's a bunch left over from Burkhart's retirement party.
4: Damn it, man. You messed it up. Come here. What?
3: I was good cop. You were good cop? I thought oh,
4: Sorry. Uh, dude, okay, well, Start again. I'll be bad cop. You're good cop. Okay, okay, got it. Okay, good. I'll go first. Now remember, you're a good cop. I'm uh, good cop. Okay, no problem. All right, Stephen, you don't give me something and I'll make sure your cellmate is a bear. And I don't mean a big, hairy, gay guy. I mean an actual bear. How long do you think you're going to last when a 1,200-pound Kodiak gets
3: hungry in the middle of the night? Listen up, you stupid bastard. Well, oh, sorry, well, no, no, no that's sorry, that's on me. Senior moment. Okay, do over, do over. Everybody back to one. Sorry. All right, uh, where was I? I'm a good cop, yeah? Yes! Okay, okay, got it, got it.
4: Now, dirtbag, where was I? What is it now?
1: Detective, I'm attorney Ann Shepard. This man is my client, and I'm sorry, but he can't answer any of your questions without myself or my partner present.
4: What partner?
1: Yes. She's on her way, and I gotta warn ya, she's a real tough cookie.
2: Andrew Harris, Trisha Ferguson, and Paul Glazier. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Federale. been sitting patiently in our audience. He's been watching us intently and writing furiously to help sum up all the lessons he's learned in the hour. Please welcome poet Scott Poole.
6: What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned I like young, semi-neurotic, hairy, bespeckled people and I like to frequent places with smelly loads of them because sometimes it makes me the least weird person for a second. (laughs) Which could be the motto of the Portland Tourism Bureau. When someone wears a fluffy sweater with a cute squirrel ironed on it, and they're not 80 years old, they're 23, have a beard, are on a huge amount of antidepressants, and actually have cut the eyes out of their sweater squirrel, so a real squirrel named Kafka living in their chest hair can look out and spy a nut if it needs to. It's easy to sigh and feel at home. Especially when the room you're standing in in a fleece loincloth is a rainy clearing in November woods and the spaghetti western band is playing a desert music hooked to a portable generator while waiting for a grizzly bear to be dropped from a helicopter so a visitor from Kansas wearing a thick rubber suit and a football helmet smeared in honey can experience mauling tourism. (laughs) People facing irrational fears head on that they would never have the chance to actually experience is the latest thing in Portland. So now you know you cannot be afraid of being trampled by unclean goats, eating a smoothie made of the organic pants you wore that day while you try to go to sleep amongst the November sleet slicking PBR cans sewn into the fabric of your flotation sleeping bag as you serenely slip down the Willamette. Remember, it's not about winning. Cool,
2: everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Lois Levine, Carrie Brownstein, and Federale. Our house band Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you Find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theatre are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris, Tricia Ferguson, and Paul Glazier, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauk. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio.
0: Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week?